We move now to Lynette Plenderleith, who's a science communicator and PhD in ecology with a penchant for frogs. She spends her days interpreting science for the general public, which takes her to schools and libraries where she performs science shows for children to instill in them with the same inspiration and curiosity she had as a child. In her spare time, she also enjoys bird watching, watch out, writing and dancing. Lynette. Thank you. Um, I brought my notes because this is my first time. Uh, since it's my first time, please be gentle with me. Um, I'm actually fairly new to science communication, having only just finished my PhD. My, um, something cool to know about that is that my PhD supervisors, PhD supervisor, PhD supervisor, 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 was in fact Georges Cuvier, my scientific hero. Um, I'm extremely proud to say that he's my academic ancestor. I suspect that he's not quite as proud to say that I'm his academic descendant. I would suggest most likely because he died of cholera in 1832. <laughs> Otherwise, I'd have said it was a given. But that wasn't the real reason I chose Georges Cuvier. Um, he's also referred to as the father of paleontology. And paleontology, if you don't know, is responsible for the biggest scientific discovery of all time, anywhere in the world, ever, anywhere. What I'm talking about is that paleontology as a discipline taught us that the egg came a significant amount of time before the chicken. <laughs> Not just the chicken, but all the chickens in the whole wide world. Not just chickens, but ostriches and caiman and inland taipans and lots of other amazing buggers that lay eggs. Pretty cool, hey? Um, but I'm not here to talk about eggs, although I could. Um, I'm actually here to talk about a good egg called Georges Cuvier. So Jean-Leopold Nicolas Frédéric Cuvier was born in Montbéliard in on. 23rd of August, 1769. Now, two things are interesting about that, or particularly interesting. One is that Georges Cuvier was a Frenchman, but at the time, Montbéliard was in some kind of weird annex of Germany, Holy Roman Empire territory, and didn't become French France until about 30 years later. The second thing that I find interesting about Georges Cuvier's birth was that none of those five names are actually Georges. But that's what they called him anyway, so there you go. Montbéliard, where he was born, was a small town up in the mountains. Um, his mother was a significant number of years younger than his father. We're not here to judge, though, so that's right. Um, his father was a retired military officer. His mother was a helicopter parent. Now, that didn't seem to do George a lot of harm. Her fervent tutelage of the young George meant that he excelled at school. He learnt Latin and Greek and was top of his class in mathematics, geography, history. In fact, he was one of those annoying folk who could just reel off dates and, and royal succession and that sort of thing, but and being unkind. It was said that it wasn't so much that George tried to remember those things, it was just that he read them once and that was sufficient to commit it to his quite brilliant memory. Um, and it was his ability to read and remember stuff at first sight that um, helped him become this amazing name in um, the natural sciences. When he was very young, he got hold of copies of uh, Histoire Naturelle and um, 
Na what's it called? Hang on now. Some foreign name. Historalium naturalium. Naturali doesn't matter. They're essentially encyclopedias that were full to the brim of interesting information about the natural sciences, and he just ingests them. He inhaled them and lived and breathed the natural sciences as a child. As a teenager, Georges studied at the Carolinian Academy in Stuttgart in Germany. Um, apparently, he picked up German um, within a few months of getting there just by being around it, and was, of course, one of the top students, despite having not spoken the language before he got there. Upon graduating, he took a position um, in Normandy, where he escaped most of the terror of the French Revolution, which he didn't really agree with, um, and he was a tutor for a young child of a nobleman. In his spare time, he um, got some fossils and compared the fossils with um, living species, because why wouldn't you? In, in 1796, at the age of 26, Cuvier was invited to go to Paris to become the assistant to a professor of anatomy at the Jardin de Plantes, one of the main um, botanical gardens in Paris. And it wasn't long until he became the professor of what he then called comparative anatomy at the Natural History Museum in Paris. Now, Paris at the time was, was a really great place to be doing science. It was, it was really coming of age, and it was, it was the, the epicenter of science and scientific research worldwide. Um, he uh, took several political appointments under Napoleon, of course, at the time, including state councillor, which was a position he held until his death. Um, but, of course, he's not known for his political career. He's known for his science. But let's put Cuvier's scientific ideas into some historical context. So these were the days before Charles Darwin. So if you've heard of Theodore Dubansky, he's, uh, he's often quoted as saying, Nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution. Well, that's great, but pity poor Cuvier, who's trying to make sense of biology without the light of evolution. The poor bloke actually didn't do too bad of a job. Um, his basic thought processes were that organisms were an entire whole that was intertwined so tightly that if any single part of its anatomy were to change or to be lost, um, that, he, that the organism would die. He didn't believe in any kind of change in an organism. He just believed that any kind of change or loss of any of its features would mean certain death. Now, I had my tonsils taken out as a child. <laughs> Phew, that was a close one, obviously. Um, he... Uh, Napoleon was invading places right, left, and center, as I'm sure you know, and he was sending specimens, or his armies were sending specimens back to Cuvier to examine. And that included some mummified animals from Egypt, things like cats. And Cuvier got hold of these mummified cats, and he looked at his cats outside his window, and he went, oh, they're the same, so species don't change then, obviously. Um, and folk like Lamarck and um, Saint-Hilaire were around at the time, and they weren't quite as convinced, which caused a fair bit of a ruckus in the scientific community. But we like a ruckus in science. That's how we learn stuff. Um, his line of thinking wasn't particularly harmful to his work. So um, what he called the correlation of parts meant that he could be given any tiny fragment of a fossil and from that sort of extrapolate and construct the whole of the individual around it. And from what I'm told by, obviously, people that know, 
he was particularly good at it. He was strikingly um, accurate representations of, of the species that, of which he'd had a, a fragment of fossil. He presumably was never given part of any part of a platypus and asked to reconstruct the whole thing. So we forgive him that. So he classified animals into vertebrata, which are the vertebrates, articulata, which were things like segmented worms, mollusca, and radiata, which are things like sea urchins, if you're not familiar. He didn't see any connection between the four branches. He thought that any connection between any of the organisms in question were as a result of function of, a, of their environment, not of the genetics, um, genetic links between them. Not that he would have known genetics anyway, but that's what we'd call it today. Um, but he did sort of touch at what we would now call convergent evolution, this idea that the environment sort of manipulates the species and the um, characteristics of that species. So convergent evolution is where you have um, animals that are not related, but that are um, exposed to similar environmental stresses, and they adapt accordingly, often the same way. So, for example, the spines of hedgehogs and porcupines and echidnas, not really related particularly closely, but they've all developed spines um, flying and gliding in squirrel gliders and birds and bats and flying fish. So those are all examples of convergent evolution, which was almost what Cuvier was getting at. And it's still up for some debate as to whether he actually knew what he was talking about or whether it's just easy for us to say, oh, yeah, he's probably right. <laughs> so here's another important thing about scientific thinking at the time. Nobody yet knew about extinction. They knew about fossils, and they assumed that fossils were all part of an animal that was still living somewhere on the Earth. So at the time, people couldn't believe that God would wipe out an organism that he'd gone to all that bother to create in the first place. Um, and much of the world remained unexplored by Europeans, so it's quite easy to expect that woolly mammoths must have lived in Bali or somewhere where they hadn't been yet. Um, but Cuvier wasn't quite so convinced, so he went about studying elephants. I guess you've got to start somewhere. And he wrote a paper on the anatomy of Indian and African elephants, showing them to be different species. And a third species, that was the American mastodon, that was known to be, or that he knew to be extinct. And he showed that all three of those species were different and that the American mastodon no longer exists. Thus, vertebrate paleontology was born. Cuvier believed that the Earth was extremely old. He also thought that the past conditions were pretty much the same as they are today, or I guess, you know, 300 years ago. Um, and he, but he also thought that there would have been what he called revolutions. We call those events today catastrophes, because I guess we're not quite as influenced by the French Revolution as he was. Um, and so he, he talked about how these natural events would wipe out significant numbers of species all at once, and thus make them extinct. Um, he never mentioned Noah by name. Uh, he, he wasn't thought to be particularly religious, actually, but it didn't take long for some other geologists to go, oh, yeah, like that flood in Genesis. Good point, mate. Well done, Cuvier. <laughs> All words to that effect. So extinction, catastrophic events, and selection of organisms by their environment, 
provided the basis for evolutionary principles that every single biologist uses to this day. It is for this reason that my academic great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, the gentle-looking man, is one of my scientific heroes. Thank you.